Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, this is the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions on your behalf is none other than producer Joe Russo. Joe, you sound a little bit under the weather today. I I, I do. I think I'm fighting uh, a cold. Um, you know, I did a couple COVID tests, and so far it's negative, but... Uh, you know, we'll keep testing and monitor it, but uh, I well, think- it gives you a more manly FM DJ voice. Oh well, there you go. Great, oh. great. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to, uh, uh, what is it, Stevie Wayne from the Fog? I'm gonna- <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to keep all our listeners up all night. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> the only DJ on the radio station. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <that> all- <laughs> for for 24 hours a day or whatever. Yeah. Um, We've got some good questions this week, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to get into it with you. Are you ready? Well, let's do it. All right. Constantine asks, I don't know how relevant this is to Mick, but since he seems to know everyone, or mostly everyone in Hollywood, does he have any stories about Clue Gallagher he could impart to us? Well, Clue Gulliger was one of the great character actors of all time. He was a big cowboy star in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, his son, John Gulliger, is the director of the Feast movies. That's right. And Clue, yes, I did know him, and I do know John. And Clue was one of the nicest men in the world. Almost any day of the week, you could catch him at the New Beverly Theater in the audience. His passion for movies was terrific. I don't have any stories. Actually, I have one story. Cynthia and I were driving down the street and we saw Clue at a bus stop. And we stopped and picked him up and took him home. You know, this was such a humble, such a wonderful guy who worked all the way to the end. You know, was taking the bus and we were able to pick him up and give him a ride to Hollywood where he lived. and, uh, And just the sweetest, warmest guy in the world. You know, his son, John, is a hugely talented director. Um, But just his niceness was legendary. And anybody who went to the new Quentin's New Beverly Theater um, knew him at least. And he was so approachable and, and he will be greatly missed. He had a really great run that lasted all the way. They did a, um, a really nice tribute to him on their marquee over the weekend. I yeah. Don't know if you saw it. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. And well-deserved a really great guy. And, and a guy whose passion for cinema was unquenchable. So you just saw, you just happened to drive by and looked out your window and you were like, Oh, there's clue. Yeah. And <laughs> I knew him a little bit through John, but I got to know him a little bit better from that trip and, and other uh, visits afterwards. But yeah, it was, uh, there's clue. We should pick him up. You, you truly are the zealot of horror. <laughs> <laughs> or as Dana calls me the forest gump, which That's I don't right. know. I heard that too. <laughs> I was, <a> <laughs> I mean, I get it. I get the analogy. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, TDE Pero and Adam both had questions about our writing processes. Uh-huh. So, Mick and Joe, what do you do when you get stuck? Do you switch to another project, take walks, listen to music, stare at the blank page until something comes to you? 
Mick, what do you do when you get stuck? I only write one project at a time. You know, I can be working on several projects, but when I'm writing a screenplay, my total focus goes to the screenplay. And now this will curse me for the rest of my life, but I've never had writer's block. And I've never come to a point where I just couldn't go on. And I don't jump around when I'm writing. I start on page one and I don't jump to act three because I've got a great scene idea. I just keep going page one, two, three, four, all the way through 110 or whatever it is. Right. Um, and I've been lucky enough that I've developed a facility to be able to, to think on paper or on a keyboard on a screen. Yeah. Um, and, and I've never really had a stumbling block that was insurmountable to me. Mm-hmm. I don't write an outline first, which is one way to avoid such stumbling blocks that works for a lot of people is you you outline uh, scene by scene before you actually write the screenplay. But of course, you can have a writer's block doing outlining as well. But I'm I'm lucky that I have a facility to just keep on going. And uh, I, I do that from page one through to the end in order. But when you're writing, I mean, are you just are you sitting down and literally you're typing for for hours on end? I mean, do you ever stop and think about the lines of dialogue or the action or uh, I mean, I think I think they're talking maybe maybe not like big, broad writers block like, oh, I can't come up with an idea. But like, do you ever think like you ever stop and pause and think like what's the next beat or what's the next line or, well, uh, you know, something takes me over when I'm writing yeah. and I, I usually will write for a, a couple hours in the morning, then after lunch, uh, another hour or two, but that's normally about 10 pages. Right. And you know, there's, it feels like I don't do the writing. My hand does everything just kind of comes out without my controlling it. Um, but again, I think it's the experience of having been a writer since I was 12 years old, sure. not a professional, but having been seriously writing since the age of 12, and I'm way over that now. Um, and I rarely stop. If I've stopped, and we've talked about this before, it's because it's not very good. Mm. And it has happened, and I labor over something that means it's not working. Uh, if it comes to me blithely and and in a rush like a river flowing downstream, uh, streamed or flowing down river, <laughs> whatever, um, it's a process that I enjoy so much that I embrace it and my characters kind of uh, use me uh, as a medium. Yeah. My characters... Yeah. Situations. I start out with an idea, and no, I, I just keep going. I, uh, I don't really stop and think about what's next. No, it's. I mean, that's that's. It's great that you can do that. I, I do find that when I'm in the zone, that tends to happen. Um, yeah. but sometimes when I'm starting to think, you know, about the next day's work or what have you, I, I do find that uh, exercise and and taking walks and driving sometimes. Uh, because you're doing something more active and yeah. then thinking about it passively ideas can start to bubble up that way. Oh yeah. I think some of uh, the most writing that I do that isn't actually typing is probably on hikes or rides or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's just a good idea that keeping your body fit keeps your mind fit as well. And uh, I think 
that those contemplative times when you're by yourself and not surrounded with uh, devices and people um, is a great way to weave your story web. And then when you sit down in front of your screen and don't keep checking uh, Instagram and TikTok and, <laughs> and all those things, which of course everybody does. Oh, ding, there's an email. I better yep. check and see in case it's important. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is, it is good to kind of shut that stuff off if you can. I, one, one trick that I've found is, um, you know, cause I'm, I like to reread my my pages in the before i start writing new stuff you know i want to i want to get caught back up in the story and, i do that uh, every day i start reading on page one and go all the way through so i i have the momentum and i i feel i'm prepared and i'm back in those situations yeah that's i Not do too, where right? i left off but from the beginning so you feel the momentum from the beginning through where you are i agree i do that too and i think it's i mean it sucks when you get to the third act and the script is, you know, 70, 80 pages that you have to read <laughs> before you're writing, but it's, it's super helpful. But what I like to do is uh, in the morning, read those pages, then go take my shower. And then when I come back, I usually have a bunch of fresh ideas because for whatever reason, Dalton Trumbo's, uh, <laughs> yeah, the... you know, creative writing in the, in the, in the water. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, um, I, I, I do find sometimes good ideas come to me or I feel re-energized after that. I, I don't know. Something, something to do with like, I don't know, being refreshed. And I, 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 yeah. I there's like a whole science behind the idea of why we get ideas in the shower. But yeah, uh, well, you're also putting everything else behind you. Um, and, you know, sh literally showering away everything, but yeah. your ideas. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of uh, being the, uh, the zealot of horror, this isn't horror, but my brother Donald, his grandfather-in-law was Dalton Trumbo. Wait, <laughs> what? Really? His, his wife is Dalton <laughs> Trumbo's granddaughter. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. There's there's literally Mick Garris just about it's it's like you know the Kevin Bacon, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really the six degrees of Mick Garris. <laughs> well, mine is only two degrees to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> there you go there you go uh on on a similar train of thought cat asks i wanted to ask you both what are your thinking movies mm -hmm. i struggle to listen to music when trying to focus on working uh it really distracts me i just want to sing along but i do find that putting on a movie helps me block out everything else and crack on with the task at hand well, I agree about music. I know Stephen King writes with blaring rock and roll music, whether it's ACDC or whatever. I can't listen to music other than non-lyrical, non-melodic music, just kind of atmospheric. But even yeah. that is a little distracting for me. Yeah, and A movie, I would think, would just totally distract me. because Yeah, I, I don't have a thinking movie. I'm the same way. I... I, you know, in college, I tried it like I would like put movies on in the background while I was like reading papers or whatever. And it, I, I realized I couldn't do it. But my wife, uh, Crystal, she can she can work with the TV on all day long. Like she she has the news on in the background and like I can't do it. It's so distracting to me. If I'm going to sit and watch something, I get absorbed in it. You know? I totally agree. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of like a scanner. I 
if I'm having a conversation and there's a bunch of people around me talking, I can't filter those out. And the same happens when I'm writing. If there's a movie going on, I can't filter that out. And it's definitely um, jamming me. You know, it's yeah. jamming my frequencies. That's a really interesting way to put it, a scanner. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I feel like I'm the same way. And maybe that's just like, the 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 writer and director and us is you know that we're always observing other people you know right. and so right. like when there is a lot of details happening around us we can't help but but absorb that like a sponge uh yeah no i i start singing along the music too if it has lyrics when i'm writing so i i, I think we've talked about this before i like propulsive uh scores like john carpenter's music's really good because yeah. it's yeah it's, it's propulsive it's repetitive it doesn't it doesn't like I I don't get too um you know Just caught up in it that I forget yeah. what I'm doing you know yeah I I I must say that I work best in silence mm. the the boring answer but probably the right <laughs> yeah. answer well it's the right answer for me that's yeah. the great thing about the creative process is that's true everybody has a different one yeah I'll tell you by the time I'm done with the climaxes and horror scripts. My wife is very sick of John Carpenter's Halloween music. <laughs> <laughs> poor Crystal. All right. Yeah, poor Crystal. <laughs> All right. Alex from Berlin notes that in an interview with Walter Hill, the director talked about the challenge of making sure his crew was all on the same page. How does Mick like to do this? How did he do it his first time directing and on something with a much bigger scope like The Stand? Well, there's a document I create that is is basically the visual philosophy of the film, the story we're going to take, uh, we're going to tell, the way we're going to do it, and I call it my visual manifesto, and it talks about the attitudes we're doing, the color patterns we're using, the lenses we're using, and why, and then every week. I will do my week's shot lists that go out to the department heads and myself um, and the script supervisor, where not only will I list the approximation of the shots that I think I need, but I also put the the attitude, the atmosphere, and you know the the emotional resonance we're going to in each one. Is this going to be uh, depicting longing? Is this going to be dread? Uh, you know, a, a, an overall feeling. So the visual manifesto helps everybody from the art department to the cinematography department uh, to wardrobe. All of these people then understand and and they can contribute from the very beginning uh, their their best ideas. And we're all literally on the same page because it's written on a page that is handed out to everybody right. and then weekly there are reminders and specifics that go into what we're doing you know at the beginning of every week i'll i'll give out my my shot list to the handful of people who need to see it when did you uh develop this because i can't imagine it was a fully formed idea that you were doing on say like fuzz bucket yet or was it not on fuzz bucket but it was on critters too cool that was something I came up with on my first movie. And I thought, you know, it sounds very fascistic, a visual manifesto, but, but it, it really 
seem to work. And and ever since, you know, since 1988, I've been I've been using that as as a helpful document for everybody involved. Have you found that um, the documents in terms of uh, how you lay it out and such has evolved over the course of like, like, do you take lessons from, oh, this didn't come across in the visual manifesto this time, but maybe I'll try it differently that next time or? Just in a natural source of evolution, as I become more experienced a filmmaker and know more about the technology and and how films are made and how to communicate with actors and crew people as well, it just evolves as my personality and my work as a as a filmmaker or author uh, evolves as well. There you have it. All right, Mike asks: Many directors look at different visual artists paintings, drawings, sculptures to guide their filmmaking aesthetic. Are there any artists in particular that you've found have influenced some aspect of your own visual language as a filmmaker? Well, there are a lot of really interesting artists, whether it's William Blake or or William Stout on completely different ends of the creative spectrum or the Hillenbrand twins who, who did beautiful lighting with contrasting blue and red lighting in their paintings. And, you know, Frank Frazetta, of course, was a comic artist of, of great renown and great specific style. Bernie Wrightson, I specifically used him on riding the bullet. He came up to Vancouver with us. And Bernie, for those who don't know, was also a great comics artist and illustrator. He illustrated Frankenstein in a very well-known volume. Uh, he he did the illustrated version of The Stand for Stephen King. A really talented artist. And I, I brought him up to do Alan Parker's artwork on the walls and everywhere else in Riding the Bullet in Vancouver. And so his art was very influential. He also, by the way, is the guy who did the art for the comic strip, um, of Jennifer that Dario Argento adapted uh, on Masters of Horror from Stephen Weber's script. But the original comic book was illustrated by Bernie Wrightson. So he's a very influential and very cinematic artist. All right. So Dave T wants to know, what is your take on the recent Warner Brothers cancellation of Batgirl and Scoob? And what precedent does this set in the industry? Well, it's not a very good precedent when somebody's the head of a documentary network takes over being the head of a narrative film company and television company and decides some of their tent poles are money wasted. You know, what they spent so far on Batgirl was $90 million and they decided not to release it so they could take that as a tax write-off. And it's He's a businessman. He doesn't give a shit about movies, obviously. You know, HBO Max, most people have come to think it's the best streamer of yeah. all of them out there, including Netflix and Hulu and Paramount Plus and Disney Plus. And he seems to be dismantling it. He's going to merge them. So Discovery Plus and HBO Max will be the same channel. Yeah, I'm and hearing it's going to be called HBO Discovery. Yay. Wow. Very creative. And <laughs> CNN will be folded into that as well. And I don't know. I, I It just seems like a schizophrenic 
approach. I mean, Disney Plus, they've got National Geographic and all folded in, but it, it seems to be a mix that works. Um, I'm sure he has a plan in mind. I'm not a businessman. I wouldn't want to be a businessman and I wouldn't want to be in charge of a streamer, especially today. Um, maybe he knows what he's doing. Discovery has been hugely successful, but, uh, you know, it's the oil and water mix of Discovery and HBO and Warner Brothers uh, seems to me to be an uncomfortable one. And he's alienating the artists who are supposed to create the work that make him his fortunes. Yeah, no, I, I, I think um, my my first immediate reaction was like, I felt so badly for all of the talent that was involved, the cast, yeah. the crew, yeah. uh, the writers, the directors. Without um, warning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the directors of Batgirl were literally were, they were celebrating their wedding. They were like, <laughs> I, I mean, like it just crazy. Um, it's, it's, I just can't imagine. Uh, I mean, obviously you and I have both had scripts that we've written that sit in drawers and will never get made. Um, yes, but, but never ones who, that were completed and then abandoned. Yes. I think there's, there's, you know, once you start making a movie, once you're actually like, you know, someone calls action and they're filming it, uh, it, it you know, you never think like, oh, this will never be seen at this point. Yeah. You know? I once, I once was hired to direct a pilot for a show uh, by Sean Cassidy called Holly Weird. And the strange thing was they'd already produced a pilot and they didn't think it worked, but they liked oh, wow. it so much and they liked Sean so much um, that they did another version and he rewrote it in a totally different direction and they brought me in as director and we did all the location scouting we were in prep we were about I think a week no more than two weeks away from shooting and they pulled the plug this was for Fox and it was a uh, a no good money after bad but oh, wow. it was like they committed to doing it a second time and then got wet feet uh right right at the last second i mean yeah i i was i've been thinking about like what is the closest approximation and i guess it really is shooting a pilot and then not having it picked up to series right yeah which i've done as well yeah yeah yeah. um i mean that is and and i imagine that i imagine that stings you know yeah Um, i mean i can't i can't imagine you know so you know going in that's a crapshoot but when you're making a yeah that's true i guess you know that's part of the deal right yeah but when you go in and you've completed a 90 million dollar feature for your biggest franchise dc yeah uh, at warner brothers and they decide it's finished nah i don't think so and they just dump it in a trunk for a tax write-off it just seems folly to me but I don't know the ways of business. Don't want to know, but I certainly don't like it. Yeah, no, I I imagine uh, a lot of artists are going to be very skeptical yeah. about racing to Warner Brothers with their next project. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm not the potential audience for Batgirl, but I'm still on their side. <laughs> we know, Mick. We yeah. know. <laughs> All right. Uh, last but certainly not least, we hope. um anonymous rights. I just hit 30 and have various shorts under my belt, some which played many different festivals and won some awards, but I just cannot seem to make this my living. I have a few scripts entered into some screenwriting competitions, but fingers crossed they will get some attention 
but I feel myself slipping from the craft I dedicated a majority of my life to. When is it time to throw in the towel? Or do I try to find the strength to keep going? I feel like a lost soul reaching out to those whose work I love and respect. Well, at 30, you're a baby. You know, I I never made a living as a screenwriter until I hit 33. And that opened some doors for me. But it really is all about timing and talent and creating something that other people want to put money up for. And you can't do that on your own. Um, you, you have to at first, but you have to find the most important thing you can do is find an agent or a producer who loves what you do and feels they can make money off of you and your project. So if you write something beautifully, even if it's not a commercial project and an agent comes across and says, Oh, this guy, I could pitch this guy for this project. I know is open an open writing assignment or something. Um, having the shorts is a great way to show that you can direct and the awards are great, but it depends on the festival. Some are more um, in the public eye than others, more uh, that receive attention from people like agents and producers. But it's a very closed shop that's difficult to get into. And, you know, it, it all depends on who sees it and whose excitement it sparks. Because if you are an agent, you take home 30 scripts a weekend. Right. And you read a handful of pages, and if you're not grabbed right away, you toss it on the pile, of the recycles, or you're reading it on your iPad, and you just junk it and go to the next one because there's plenty of people waiting in line. It's not that there aren't a thousand talented filmmakers waiting at the door. Um, it's there are so many, it's hard to find the good ones. And they're always looking for the good ones. And by the good ones, it's usually somebody whose work stands out from everybody else's. So obviously, if you're winning awards, you have talent, your films are worthy. Uh, it's just a matter of how you get to them. And and it's tough. Uh, you know, people, unless it's their job as an agent is, an established agent is not really looking for new people. They're looking for people that they can bring in and make money off of immediately. Right. But what you need to do is find a young agent or a would-be agent working in the mailroom or uh, as an assistant or somebody like that yeah. who, who is asked by his boss or her boss to read material all the time and maybe even to do coverage and the like. But to impress somebody like that who will go, look, who I found, this really stands out. This is really special, but it's the most competitive job in the world right now. And it's only amplified a hundred times since I started. I, I think um, the, the key thing you said, and you said it right at the beginning was you didn't make your first dollar as a writer until your early thirties. You yeah. know, um, yeah. I didn't sell my first screenplay until 32 I didn't direct my first feature until 35. There's plenty of filmmakers who didn't get their shot at directing movies until their forties. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess what, I guess what we're trying to say is don't be discouraged. You're just getting started, you know? Yeah. And or, 
or, you know, if you can get that discouraged by the age of 30 that you're willing to give it up, then maybe you don't have the, the, the passion. I'm guessing you do. Um, but I understand it's like a treadmill and it's a yeah. treadmill going uphill, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't get easier once you're in, <laughs> No, and, and you know, it really is tough. And if, if you don't feel that you can put another three or four years into it, then maybe it's not the job for you. And I'm not here to discourage you. I'm here to encourage you because, you know, that passion needs to keep going. I started writing at 12 and I got my first paycheck at 33. So I spent 20 years writing before it ever paid. Yeah, I think as long as you still like writing as long as you still like directing the shorts um you should keep doing it you know that's the thing you do it because you love it not because you think it's going to make you rich right and then eventually you make something that that you love that someone else loves and then it kind of happens you know uh, yeah these competitions are great whether it's scripts or short films or whatever um but the door to an agency needs to open to you. Uh, you know, the, the middleman is really important because you can be a great artist and nobody find you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it's, it's, it sounds glib, but like, you know, it will happen when it's supposed to happen because you've created the thing that someone else falls in love with, you know, and, yeah. and that's, and that's, it's as simple and as hard as that, you know, exactly. Yeah. Yep. All right, Mick. Well, on that note, I think this is uh, I'm going to go take some some NyQuil. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Go take a nap and uh, and then we'll be back. And again, if you're enjoying the show, please um, like and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, spread the word. And Joe, let everybody know how they can ask me anything. You can send your questions to Mick on social media at Mick Garrison PM on Twitter and Instagram, uh, or you can find me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively. And we now have an email you can send them to, which is where a lot of people are sending them. Uh, ask Mick anything at gmail.com. Uh, we will scour the interwebs for the best of the best questions. And we will ask them on the next postmortem. Ask Mick anything. Thanks for asking. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.